This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you've joined us. Dr. Ibram Kendi is an historian and director of the Anti-Racist Research and Policy Center at American University. He is also the author of the National Book Award-winning Stamped from the Beginning. And that book was a deep look into racism and racist ideas, and it's told throughout uh, American history by chronicling the lives of notable Americans from Thomas Jefferson to W.E.B. Du Bois. Uh, His new book, How to Be an Anti-Racist, turns the story inward and describes Dr. Kendi's own journey of identifying his own internalized racist ideas and transforming to become an anti-racist. I'm really glad to welcome Dr. Ibram X. Kendi to Detroit Today. It's great to have you here. Oh, it's great to be on the show. So um, let's start with this idea of the journey from uh, from where you were to being an anti-racist. In this book, uh, you you make this about you know deliberate choices and uh, deliberate action. Uh, talk about how that unfolded in your life. Well, I think it unfolded in my life in many ways through either a series of mirrors in which I had been saying things. So to give an example, I had been saying that there was something wrong with, with black people. And I didn't realize that was a problem. But when, when I heard someone else say it and I felt and I recognized that what they were saying was wrong, it suddenly put up a mirror to what I was saying until I realized that what I was saying was wrong too. Or, of course, other people who, who, who recognized and, you know, what I was doing and tutored and mentored and challenged me to, to be anti-racist. And so really it's these mirrors and these mentors that were critical, I think, in my own journey. And let's talk about that term you're using, anti-racist. How does that differ from someone saying they're not a racist? So typically, as you know, people say I'm not racist when someone charges them as being racist. Right. And so the typical response is I'm not racist. What an anti-racist would say when someone charges them with being racist is, well, here's the definition of a racist idea, of a racist policy, of a racist. Let me apply that to what I just said or did. In fact, what I did or did not was indeed racist. But what historically has happened, I think, for many people is instead of assessing themselves, people reflexively deny um, their own racism. And I think what people also don't realize is that white nationalists deny their racism. Jim Crow segregationists denied their racism. Slaveholders and eugenicists denied their racism. That, in fact, the heartbeat of racism itself is denial. And so I think not racist has historically been a term of denial when when anti-racists have fundamentally accepted who they were and have been trying to be someone different. Yeah. Uh, And I think we can't have this conversation without placing it in the modern context and the immediate modern context. I mean, you think about the things that people say about race right now, people like the president of the United States who says he's the least racist person 
that you could ever know. Someone like uh, Joe Biden, former vice president of the United States, also running to be president, saying he doesn't have a racist bone in his body. Uh, These ideas of... uh, uh, the, the the deflection or the defense of uh, against being called a racist uh, is a way of I, I think moving the conversation away from the kinds of things that you're talking about, which is how do you fight back against racism? It becomes this this kind of gotcha game of um, uh, you know who's culpable and 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 who's not, and that doesn't it's a conversation that can't progress at, uh, past a certain point. It isn't, and, 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 and I think that's why really the term not racist and even identifying ourselves as not racist really traps us into passivity and into defensiveness. And, and I think we should also recognize two things that are going on that I think people don't necessarily realize that I tried to unpack in, in how to be an anti-racist. The first is people typically are led to believe that racist is like a fixed category, it's an identity, it's a tattoo. So when they say they're not racist, they, of course, are saying, don't tattoo that R word on my head <laughs> for the rest of my life. Uh, and, and secondly, I said R word because in many ways the term racist has been conceived of as like an attack, as like a racial slur. But I think what people don't realize is it was actually white nationalists who were typically preaching to white Americans that racist was a racial slur Hmm. so that they can continue to manipulate white people into with their racist ideas so that they can essentially join their movement. And we see what's happening now with the rise of white nationalists in this country. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, Let's talk a little about uh, your book, which begins with an MLK speech competition. Uh, that you write, when you recall the racist speech you gave, you are, quote, flush with shame. Talk about that competition and talk about that moment in your life. Sure. So, yeah, I was a senior in high school in, in Northern Virginia, and my county, Prince William County, outside of Washington, D.C., had, had an annual Martin Luther King oratorical contest. And the way it was set up was each high school had a, its own competition, and then the winners from each high school competed in this countywide competition, and the finalists spoke at MLK Day. And I was one of the finalists, and I spoke at MLK Day 2000. And this was, of course, at the tail end of the 1990s, Mm -hmm. which was, if there was ever a decade in which people across races and people across ideologies were saying that one of the central problems racial problems in this country is black youth, it was the 1990s. Mm-hmm. That was a decade of the so-called super predator. Mm-hmm. That was a decade in which people were talking about young black uh, girls and teenagers having too many babies. And so I internalized those ideas and ultimately repeated them back during that speech. And so during that speech, I talked about black youth not valuing education, black youth trying to climb the high tree of pregnancy, I basically expressed all of these notions of internalized racism. And, of course, when I, repeat, when I think back of that speech, you know, of course, I'm deeply ashamed. And I also realize that internalized racism is, in fact, the real black-on-black crime. Hmm. And talk about um, 
Talk about this journey for you as an African-American, um, this idea um, that, uh, that confronting your own misunderstandings or misnomers about race um, is something that, uh, that a lot of people don't necessarily think African-Americans do or need to do. Well, I think first and foremost, we should think about the effects that racist ideas anti-black racist ideas has on any mind, including mm-hmm. black minds. Mm-hmm. And, and what the effect of these ideas is it causes black people, it causes any group of people to say that the problem is black people. And when you think that the problem is black people and not racist policies and powers, you are essentially not going to challenge racist policies. If anything, you're going to spend your time attacking or trying to civilize black people. And, and so it has a very real effect on black resistance to racism, just like it has a, a very real effect on anybody's resistance to racism. And, and so for me, as I became more anti-racist, as I began to conceptualize that the problem was policy and not people, the more I began to sort of challenge racism itself. Mm. Uh, this is Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and my guest is Dr. Ibram X. Kendi. He's a professor and director of the Anti-Racist Research and Policy Center at American University, and he's author of a new book called How to Be an Anti-Racist. We're talking about that term, anti-racist, anti-racism, and how it may differ from the idea of not being a racist. Uh, we're also talking about race and the racial narrative that is unfolding right now here in the United States. Um, If you want to join the conversation, give us a call. Tell us what the terms racist and anti-racist mean to you. Do we throw around those terms too much uh, or do we ignore racism too often, especially in our own daily lives? How would you react if somebody called you a racist? When someone says that word to you in accusation, how does that feel? And what's your reaction to it? How do you respond when you're called a racist? Uh, Does that offend you? And do you believe that race relations here in America have gotten better or worse as we have started to talk more publicly uh, about racism, its history, and the way it affects the present. As always, the number on the phones here is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and uh, we will work you into the conversation. Before we get to phones, uh, Dr. Ibram, I want to I talk about an article you have in The Atlantic that's about this extraordinary New York Times 1619 project, which uh, looks back at the 400 years since the first uh, black slaves were brought here to America. You say you're both hopeful and hopeless about the legacy of racism in America. I, I would love for you to, to expand on uh, on that notion. Sure. So I think the hopelessness stems from the obvious fact that today is the 400-year anniversary of the first sort of documented arrival of, 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 of African people uh, in what later became, of course, the United States. Um, and I should say the British colonies that later became the United States. But in racism... 400 years later, it's still pervasive, it's still powerful, 
is still spreading in certain types of ways. And so for somebody to reflect on its existence for 400 years and its power 400 years later, it's, it's hard to not feel hopeless. But at the same time, I recognize that in order to eliminate racism, in order to be anti-racist, I have to be hopeful that you literally have to believe in the possibility of change in order to, to basically have the wherewithal to bring about that change. Hmm. And are we, are we moving as we have this more public discussion? Do you think we're moving toward that kind of reckoning that you're talking about? Or are we just agitating in a way um, that, that digs people uh, sort of further into their entrenched positions? So I actually think, in, in, I actually think having conversations, even if the conversations are hard and harmful and painful, that that, that can still be productive and constructive. And, and obviously, I think it should extend more than conversation and, and it should extend into power and policy. But in terms of conversations, I don't think we should measure it by the pain. I mean, it's just like, you know, at the end of the book, I, I, I sort of compare metastatic cancer that I experienced last year to, to metastatic racism. And it is a painful process going healing, being healed from metastatic cancer. And I think we have to recognize it's going to be a painful process healing this country from metastatic racism. Mm. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. Let's go to Barry in Green Oak Township. Barry, what's on your mind? Hi, Stephen. Thank you for taking my call. Sure. I'm just saying to your screener that uh, I am a white male of 60 years old. Uh, and when I think about myself logically, I don't think of myself as a racist. However, uh, I do find occasionally there are situations where I have an emotional reaction that is definitely hmm. racist. Hmm. So my, and part of my concern with you know, just kind of society moving forward on the idea of race is I don't find that there are a whole lot of public spaces where I could make that statement and hmm. have a constructive dialogue about it. Uh, you know, to admit that you have some racism within you is uh, something that will shut I believe we'll shut a lot of people down. So I like the idea of anti-racism because I do think it provides a, a path forward where we can take a look at ourselves and each other, recognize where we fall short and uh, have some constructive dialogue about how we move forward. Hmm. Uh, you know, Barry, I, I really appreciate the call and, and your honesty here. Um, I wonder if you can give us an example, though, of of what you're talking about, this kind of emotional reaction uh, that, that you have sometimes that you think is, uh, is racist. Well, okay, I can give you one that uh, is very local mm -hmm. in the Detroit area. Uh, when Kwame Patrick was going through some of his legal issues, mm -hmm. um, and I would see him on television, uh, you know, I, I thought of, uh, you know, the N-word popped in, into my head. There's really? no doubt about it. I, yeah, I looked at him that way, yeah. Wow. So it's, uh, you know, it's a, a strong emotional reaction to that's devoid of logic, really, right. but it's there. Right, 
Barry, I, I really do appreciate the call. And again, your, your very stark honesty here uh, about what we're, what we're talking about. Uh, Dr. Kendi, um, what's the answer to what, what is ailing Barry there? I mean, this, this notion he has that um, he harbors racist reactions and emotions, uh, but the, the desire to be able to admit that and not, I guess, be you know, uh, painted with a scarlet, scarlet letter or, as you say, have the, the R you know, painted on his forehead. So, as I mentioned earlier, that the heartbeat of racism is denial. Well, the heartbeat of anti-racism is confession. Mm. And, and so the anti-racist is willing and able to confess, you know, as he just did. But simultaneously, anti-racists are willing to provide the spaces and the places for other people to confess, which is just as critical. You know, obviously, this is a social thing, confessing. And so we have to be able to create a nation where people can confess. You can't condemn people for being racist, expect them to be anti-racist. And then when they start beginning that process, you essentially shut them down. And, and, it's, and it's very difficult, uh, obviously, to do, but it's something that's, that's necessary. Hmm. Again, Barry, I really appreciate the call uh, and your, your very starkly honest uh, comments. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Dr. Ibram X. Kendi, and we're going to get to more of your calls. Sam in Dearborn, Madeline in Suburbia, and Joe in Williamsburg, New York. Hang on to the line. We will get to you next. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, really glad that you have joined us. My guest is Dr. Ibram X. Kendi, a professor and director of the Anti-Research, Anti-Racist Research and Policy Center at American University and author of the book, How to Be an Anti-Racist. We're talking about uh, racism and anti-racism here in modern America and, of course, the racial narrative that's unfolding around us right now, all of the ways in which we are engaging with these questions in a different and perhaps more honest way. If you want to join the conversation, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones, as always. Uh, you can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. We'll try to work you into the conversation. Let's go to Sam in Dearborn. Sam, welcome to the show. Hi, good morning. Hi. I wanted to thank... Uh First, the professor for his very enlightening words. Um, my question was, uh, I wanted to get the professor's view on how to tackle uh, internalized racism uh, being kind of pushed by other races. I'm an Arab American, and I see that Arab Americans also hold uh, racist views towards black people. And, of course, they're not coming from a place of, uh, white superiority or uh, white privilege. So um, I know other races kind of express negative views towards black people. So I wanted to see what the professor thought of that and how to tackle those issues. Sam, I really appreciate the call uh, and the question. Dr. Kendi, uh, what, what, what about what Sam is uh, asking about there? 
Well, yeah, I'm, I'm happy Sam asked about that because when people say, for instance, people of color can't be racist, they're, they're not including, for instance, how African-Americans view Native people um, in, in, in derogatory ways and how some Native people view African-Americans in derogatory ways. And, and so these ideas, anti-Black, anti-Native, anti-Asian, and so on and so forth, really cut across sort of racial lines. And I think it's absolutely critical for us to recognize as, as that all of these racial groups are equals and that differences between racial groups are not a reflection of hierarchy, that we should be assessing every racial group from its own standards and we should look at the cause of racial inequities and disparities as the result of racist policies. That's what anti-racists do. While racists say black people are more likely to be incarcerated because black people are more likely to be criminal. Mm. Black people are more likely to be unemployed because black people don't want to work. Those are racist ideas. Mm. Uh, Again, thanks very much, Sam, for the call and the great question. Let's go to Madeline in uh, suburbia. Madeline, welcome to Detroit. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you. Mm I want to point out that we are exceptional at creating these labels that keep us separated and which the politicians can use, like mental, uh, shooters and mental illness. But the bottom line is we are prejudging, and prejudice is, is a human condition. Mm. If we could use a different language, like uh, police shoot black people, they're executing citizens. Huh. So, so Madeline, changing th- the language, yeah, could, uh, unite us. Yeah, it's an interesting us a tribe. It's a really interesting uh, idea, Doctor Kendi. Talk about the way we use language and whether it exacerbates uh, race, uh, as Madeline says. Oh, without question, and and I think not only the language we use to talk about racism, obviously but even the language we use to talk about each other. Um, and, and I think that that is dead on. I mean, you have political figures right now classifying people who are fleeing violence as rapists and animals. And, of course, when people hear animal rapist mm-hmm. and when people hear the term invader, that is a violent term. Mm-hmm. And so some people are going to think that mass shooting people who are invading my state is actually a form of self-defense, you know, as the El Paso shooter pretty much wrote. And so words have meanings, and and that meaning can sort of divide us. You know, I I agree, as she stated. Hmm. Uh, Again, Madeline, thanks a lot for the call and your thoughts. Uh, Let's go to Emerson in Shelby Township. Emerson, what's on your mind? Hi. Hi. um, I just wanted to call and ask, uh, you know, the opinion on the role of education and all this. Because I feel like, like from uh, from my perspective, um, you know, I'm like I'm white and I'm about 20 years old and going to high school in this area, like pretty like, you know, like really white area. You know, it's like a graduating class of like 800 people, like maybe 20 people of color, mm-hmm. and all of it. And I just I feel like because of that, you know, there's never like a strong enough conversation about race and the impacts of these things early enough like on before like these views have solidified right in people's head and they decide that they like oh well, i don't want to talk about race it doesn't matter or like they've absorbed these these racial ideas and i was just wondering 
what the thoughts on the importance of yeah. education and all that is. Emerson, thanks very much for that call, uh, for the questions and and for your call. Uh, Dr. Kendi, you talk a lot in your book about the steps that people can take in their everyday lives to 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 be anti-racist, and I think that's kind of what Emerson is getting at here: is that uh, for a lot of people. Um, you know, the opportunity to do that doesn't necessarily present itself in an obvious way. You grow up in a community where everybody looks like you and where race is not discussed very often. What what are they what, what are people in that situation supposed to do? Well, I think first and foremost, we should sort of recognize that even when race is not being discussed in a obvious sort of way, it's still being discussed. It's still there. And what I mean by that is if you have racial inequities in the United States that are persistent and that are widespread, and no one explains the complexities behind those inequities, which are usually policies and power, then it's only naturally natural that a young person is going to say, well, it must be because that person must have less because they are less. And so then someone by not talking to them, sort of develops these sort of ideas, which are ultimately racist, to explain reality. And so I think we, in a way, have to almost untrain ourselves, or I should say train ourselves to be someone different, train ourselves to be anti-racist. And the way we do that on a daily basis is either we're going to truly accept the racial equality of humanity as an anti-racist or we're not. And once we do that, we should recognize that any racial inequity we see, it can't be because there's something wrong or even right about a racial group. It must be the result of a racist policy. And then it becomes our job to uncover that policy or to support the organizations and powerful figures that are uncovering and challenging and replacing those racist policies. Hmm. Uh, Okay, again, Emerson, thanks very much for uh, the call and the questions. All right, uh, Dr. Ibram X. Kendi, professor and director of the Anti-Racist Research and Policy Center at American University, author of How to Be an Anti-Racist. It was really great to have you here with us on Detroit Today. Oh, yeah. Well, thank you so much for having me on the show. Mm -hmm. All right, that's going to do it for me today. I will be back tomorrow, and I hope you will too, because we are going to have Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel with us for a check-in on the Flint water crisis investigation and lots of other issues. Also, remember, again, Thursday, 6 p.m. at the Ferndale Public Library, we're going to continue the WDET book club discussion of Mona Hannah Atisha's What the Eyes Don't See. We'll be joined by ACLU investigative reporter Kirk Guyette and Oakland County Water Commissioner Jim Nash. We hope to see you there. Again, Ferndale Public Library, 6 p.m. Thursday, August 22nd. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.